are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Every night, uh, every, every Sunday, preachers are fired up. Um, I'm certainly fired up tonight. Um, just, man, my heart's just heavy for you um, in all the right ways. God's at work. Uh, if you're not aware of that, ask your neighbor. I promise you they'll tell you a story about how God's at work. Um, he's doing things. That doesn't, that doesn't mean we like all the things that he's doing. It doesn't mean we understand all the things that he's doing. Uh, but God is at work. And again, as we've been talking about in Job, the only way to make sense of things that God is doing is by looking very clearly at what he has already done. In other words, it might not help you to make sense of your own suffering by looking towards your own suffering. It might make more sense to understand what God is doing in your suffering by looking at his suffering for you. That tells you everything you need to know about the direction of your life because you are included in him and he is included in you. Uh, But also it tells you, first and foremost, of a judgment already passed, as we'll talk about tonight. Uh, You will know that this is not about judgment and punishment as if to say God's after you. Uh, That judgment has already been passed. Uh, But it might be something in the heart of God to give you something greater than you can even imagine if your life was going swimmingly or if you were sufficient apart from God. So we're in Job 27. Tonight, we'll, we'll get through Job 27, but we're kind of in a, a little bit of a, a, a stall period in the book of Job between a couple uh, arguments between Job's friends. we got one more friend kind of coming up. He's going to give a summary. He's kind of a different voice in Job's life, uh, but probably not very helpful uh, as well like his, like his friends. But Job's going to kind of ramble on a little bit and try to defend himself and gain a little bit of clarity here in the next couple chapters. So we're in kind of a, a, an extended monologue of Job here coming up in 27 through about uh, chapter 30 or so. But one of the most underemphasized aspects of the Christian life and even the story of Job is this idea of waiting. Waiting. When's the last time you really thought about the Christian life as being almost the sum of what it feels to wait? Well, I could almost argue that from Scripture, that a lot of uh, saints that have gone before us have done really nothing but wait. And even some of the things that we read in the Psalms uh, has a lot to do with waiting. They will wait on the Lord or they'll cry out, how long do we have to wait? And even the New Testament church, as we read through the book of Acts, uh, Peter and the rest of the apostles were helping the church to wait well, to wait properly. Hey, there is something that has happened. Yes, that's going to happen to you, but you have to wait. It's coming. And this is really where we find ourselves in this time of salvation history. There is a lot 
in the Christian life that could be summed up with just simply this idea of, well, just wait. Even some of the things that they were crying out uh, to Jesus on his way to the crucifixion, Maranatha, like, Lord, save now. And Jesus is like, I will, but also just wait. Just hang on. And as Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he say? Behold, I'm, I'm coming quickly. You're going to have to wait. The Christian life is a game of waiting. One of the things that makes it really hard is that when you combine it with Jesus' promise that, yes, it's waiting, but it's not just kind of like this easy waiting game, right? It's, it's kind of like, especially now that summer's in the swing of things and we're trying to give some sort of structure and some semblance of normalcy to our kids on a daily basis because kids thrive under structure. So it helps to give our kids, hey, here's roughly how a day is going to work in, in our household uh, especially as they get older, one of the things we can't, because the first question out of their mouth is, when can we play the switch? And inevitably we'll have to tell them, you need to wait. You need to wait. Okay. Now, waiting is a lot easier if they're not suffering. Now, to them, we might have different definitions, right? They might feel like it's suffering, but in reality, what do they have to wait? Like, what do they have to do while they wait? We encourage them to do things like read books or play with Legos or play with the other million toys that you have. There are literally a million options. They're all lying around on the floor in the basement. Pick one of those, entertain yourself, do whatever you have to do in order to wait. And that's not suffering. That's pretty easy, but it's still hard to wait, isn't it? Still pretty tough. Waiting is not fun. Conversely, suffering really is tough. It's not easy. But what if I sweetened the pot a little bit and said, hey, you only have to, you have to suffer, okay? There's some suffering involved in your life, but it's only right now. It's only like for the next 30 minutes as you listen to me preach. That's suffering, right? Just one time, just one time. Well, that can be, that can be done, right? So for instance, if I, if I told you, hey, your dishwasher is going to go kaput this month. But I promise you, by the end of the month, the exact penny amount of that dollar figure to replace that dishwasher, it'll be in your bank account. It'll be okay. And that's hard, right? No one likes it when their appliance breaks. It's really inconvenient. It's tough. You wonder, like, because they, they normally come in threes. You're like, Lord, what are you doing? What other things are going to break, right? So you're waiting around and all of a sudden, but, but it hits your bank account. And so, like, you're suffering, but you're not waiting. Suffering's hard, but it makes it easier if it's just like a one-time thing. Well, the Christian life is really tough because it's both suffering and waiting. <laughs> Romans has a lot to say about suffering and waiting. I gave you homework last week. I'm going to give you homework again. I want you to think through suffering and waiting through the lens of Romans 8. What does Romans 8 teach you about suffering and waiting. Does God have any purpose in it? I'll give you a little bit of a hint by reading actually what was in our prayer sheet. Thank you, Bethany. You had no idea. Yeah, yeah, I know you did. I know we're tracking along the same line. I want to give you, actually, I was going to read part of Romans 8, but I'm giving you that homework because I wanted to read Romans 5, which is a better text. Um, but it says this. Not only that, 
but we rejoice in our sufferings. Do we? Do we? Do we really rejoice in our sufferings? Well, what, what possibly could God be doing in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance? Suffering helps us to wait. Why? Because endurance produces character. And that character is the exact thing that God promised to work in us as we wait. And so that character then produces hope. And we start to realize God's fulfilling his promises to us on the inside. He will fulfill his promises to us on the outside. It's beautiful. That's Romans 8. Though we suffer, though we groan, though all of creation groans, we wait in the throes of like child labor. It feels like child labor. It's hard. It's tough. It's not easy. And we wait but we wait knowing that there will be a product at the end. There will be hope at the end. The joy will be complete at the end. Suffering is at work. The kind of waiting that God calls his believers to is the suffering kind of waiting. And so the only question then that we would have for this suffering kind of waiting is, is there anything that can fill the void as we wait and suffer? Is there anything right here and right now that we have that can fill the void of our hearts as we wait and suffer? Job is starting to learn this reality. He's starting to answer this question. He doesn't have everything figured out. He's on the uh, one side of the cross and resurrection, so he doesn't have full clarity, but he has always tugged on the thread of God's mercy. And that has been the thing that he has clung on to in a lot of different circumstances. Again, without a lot of clarity, he didn't have the final understanding of exactly how Jesus would come or how God would be merciful, but he kept hanging on to the thread of mercy. And this is the thing that we on this side of the cross and resurrection must also come to grips with. God has given us something by which we can fill the void of our heart as we wait and suffer. And the answer is God himself. God himself. Just him. Or as we sing, Jesus, only Jesus. Help me trust you more and more. And this goes back to, and this is challenging because this goes back to one of the original would-you-rather questions that I pose at the beginning of the book of Job. Would you rather have a perfect life, no suffering, no sense of waiting, just a perfect life without God, okay? All of your dreams, all of your wishes, everything you want Everything in your perfect life sans God, no God. Or would you rather have a suffering life, a life like Job had? Everything gone, everything stripped away, nothing to stake your name on, nothing to put your hope or your identity or your life in, nothing at the end, no product, no valuability, nothing to offer back. But God's still there. What would you rather have? 
And so this waiting and suffering and this question of, is there anything to fill the void, is usually to our hearts not the answer we want. Because the answer is, yes, there is. It's called God himself. God as the God as a person who loves us and comes to us. The person of God himself. That's it. And so that answer is really hard because the reality is, I think a lot of us in our Bible answers would love to say, oh, give me the suffering life in God. Give that to me. But at the core of our lives and the function of our lives, many of us would never choose anything but a perfect life. So this is hard. You might not think it's hard. In other words, the answer, what can fill the void? Only God himself. I promise you, there's no way that I, that I can say it to hit your heart hard enough that it'll hit like on Monday, right? When the dishwasher inevitably breaks. And they come in threes, by the way, just letting you know. Job begins his appeal, and this is really not just back to Bildad. Bildad was the last friend that we talked about last week. Now he's kind of shifted away from the conversation of just Bildad. And now in chapter 27, he's beginning to address all three of his friends. So tonight, the, the passage is actually pretty simple to like split up. Uh, you're you're going to get a, a source of Job's confidence. He's going to talk about what he's confident in. He's going to offer a little prayer. Uh, and then the third point here, he's going to give a little warning. Uh, but in that, he gives us some theological truths that help us to see and that point us to this reality that life, as we wait and as we suffer, only makes sense with God himself as a person. It's all we've got. So let's look tonight at Job's, first of all, at Job's confidence. Get here. Is there anything to fill the void? Number one, let's look at Job's confidence. He's very confident that God will vindicate the righteous. God will vindicate the righteous. Look what he says in chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. And again, Job took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Again, I want to reiterate that Job now has been, uh, he was talking individually with his, his one friend, and now he really begins to lay out his argument and his final defense against the entire tenor of his three friends, their kind of religiosity kind of, uh, framework of, hey, Job, if you just got your life better, if you just started doing more, trying harder, succeeding at your life a little bit, uh, then God would reward you for the things that you have done. Or if you would just admit your sin, right? If you would stop going backwards, then your life would actually start going forwards. And Job's like, I'm suffering innocently. I don't know how to tell you this, but it's not because of what I've done or not done, because I've done it all right. Not that he was sinless or, or perfectly blameless, but in uh, respect to everybody else around him, Job was not being treated by the hand of God in ways that he felt like he deserved. 
And he has this kind of indictment towards God here in verse 2. As God lives, he has taken away my right. And the Almighty, he is the one who has made my soul bitter. This has been a thread that Job has had all along. God is in control of my sufferings. This is not random circumstance. This is not the cards of religion. This is not karma. This is God himself intervening in my life. It's his hand. He'll bring up his sovereignty in terms of redemption, but he'll also bring up his sovereignty in terms of judgment as well, as we'll see here just a little bit. But throughout all of this, yes, it is the hand of God, but he makes it very clear in verse 3 that as long as his breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, that is, his presence is with me. Or he could even say, just it's a little tough through the translation of verse 3, but his spirit, the spirit of God, the breath of God is in his lungs. We could even translate that directly with the spirit. The spirit has indwelt in his heart and his spirit is speaking in and through Job at this moment. His presence is with him. God hasn't left him. God hasn't abandoned him. And then in verse 5, it gets a little testy. Verse 5, kind of in the ESV, puts it a little soft. Far be it from me to say that you're right. Uh, better translated, I'll be darned if I ever say you're right. You could probably even include another word in there. Uh, I'm never, ever going to say that you are right in this. What he's trying to argue for is his innocent suffering. And that's not to say, because in, in verse 6, it gets a little... Um, Maybe, maybe a little harsh. Uh, I hold fast to my righteousness. To me, this is not Job clinging to like a self-righteousness. Like he's not trying to say, it's because I'm righteous uh, that I deserve this kind of like, I've done enough to get to God. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, when it comes to your conversation with me, what is deserved on the human level, Job is saying, I'm living a better life than you are. So it's not, it's not, about, it's not about who gets what from here. Job is trying to argue with his friends, saying, I am suffering innocently. I am innocent of the kind of suffering that I am getting, and I'm yet here I am still suffering under the hand of God. In other words, this isn't about religion. This isn't about pulling the certain kind of strings you need to with God to get in his good graces. Sometimes God causes you to walk through suffering just because it's in God's heart to cause you to walk through suffering. He has other intentions other than you trying to clean up your life. He's not trying to get you to learn something so that you can fix yourself and crawl back to him. That's not how God intends for the Christian life to, to look. That's not why God gives you suffering, so that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and crawl back to God. We see this in the cross of Jesus, don't we? God has divine purposes for innocent suffering. And my friends, if you don't think that through your union with Christ, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ who is in you, would help you reflect the life of Christ, my friend, I think you may need to go back uh, to some of your core theology. Who Jesus is becomes who you are. Who you are becomes, in, in one sense, reflects who Jesus is. You are together. As we just sang, I am his, he is mine. There's three things in this passage that I think are really helpful that Job is saying. I think number one, he's saying he's sovereign, that God is so sovereign over your suffering. My friend, if you are not 
aware of that reality and, and, and understand my heart when I say suffering. I don't just mean the big things in life. I mean the small things in life too. The small little injustices that just seem that to make up and maybe uh, a mountain out of a molehill kind of situation where you feel like this world isn't right. Somebody cutting you off on the highway. My friends, God is involved in the suffering of your life, big and small. Don't think for a second that this world is left up to chance, to chaos, to karma. God is involved in it all. Number two, he's involved in your suffering. Number two, he's with you in it. He's present. He's not watching from a distance. If you have been united to Christ, through baptism into him, his spirit indwells you, you're walking by faith in the the spirit, you have the spirit of God, my friend, he is along for the ride in your suffering. He's not estranged. He's not hoping you crawl back. He is with you. As I said this last, last week, I said oftentimes I think we, we think that, like, man, God helps us to get through our sufferings, to pick us up so that we can, like, get on the way, right, and get back to him. And, it, and as one author said it, it's like sometimes we, we land on the bathroom floor and we find that he's already there with you. He's already there. Just kind of waiting for you to get down where he's at. He's with you in your suffering. And then number three, I think what Job's trying to help you understand is that this has nothing to do with judgment. I don't know what this is. I think in Job's mind. I don't know what this is. I tend to think it's mercy. Haven't figured it out yet. But I know it's not judgment. I know God's not getting back with me because of all the things that I've done. He's sovereign over your suffering. He's with you in it. And it's not judgment. And so I can say to you, I know there are a lot of people going through different things, big and small, here in church tonight. But whatever he's doing, wherever he has you, and no matter how you feel, you can rest assured that as sure as Jesus is raised from the dead, God will save you from your suffering and set all things right. But you're just going to have to wait just going to have to wait. And I know that's tough. But Job then leans into a prayer, and I hope this prayer helps give you a little bit of confidence too in what God is doing. He begins to unload a prayer towards his friends. There we go. Job's prayer. And again, along with this prayer, I think we're going to see another theological truth that he presents. The wicked will never have God. I present it this way because I think this is what the text gives us, but I also kind of think conversely the hope that Job is taking away from this. Yes, the wicked will never have God, but I will always have God. And again, he's not going to point to his self-righteousness. He's going to point to the mercy of God. It's going to be a thread that he's, that he's pulling on. The wicked will never have God, but we, as those who have been united to Christ by faith on account of his mercy, we will always have God. And my friend, that is something worth resting in. And he says this in verse 7. Let my enemies, this is his prayer, let my enemies be as the wicked. And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry? 
When distress comes upon him, will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? This must have been extremely awkward for Job's friends to hear. This would have been quite the accusation back at his friends. Let my enemy be as the wicked. Let him who rises up against me, really my accuser, let my accuser or accusers be as the unrighteous. This would have been like, is he he talking about us? We're standing right here, Job. We can hear you, man. Like, we can hear you. But this prayer that let all who rise up against me, who would accuse me based upon this idea of innocence or blameless or, hey, Job, it's got to be something that you did. You've got to have deserved this in some way. He's asking for God to treat them as the wicked or the unrighteous. And he gives us this helpful understanding of exactly the judgment that God has in store for those who would reject who would reject or go against or even accuse the blameless one. And I say it that way intentionally. God will cut him off, verse 8. God will take away his life. God will not hear his cry, verse 9. He will have no delight in God, verse 10. He will not be able to call upon God at any time. The one who rejects the innocent sufferer is the one who God will rise up and judge. And they will never have God. Job's obsession with justification before God kind of gains more clarity as we see Job's prayer and understand what happens to those who refuse God's provision of mercy. Again, Job was always claiming an innocent kind of suffering in a way that leaves space for God's mercy to be at work. And this is kind of tough because Job then starts to call people that refuse Job and start to resist Job and even say, Job, it's something you've done, who are kind of counter the reality of God's mercy or counter the backwards intuition of God and his wisdom, who try to look at life from the top side down. Uh, He's trying to say that those people end up becoming God's enemies. And my friends, don't we see this extremely clearly at the cross? Those who reject the innocent sufferer, the one that God would raise up and allow us to see and sense a little ground or space of his mercy where God is actually working bottom side up, right? It's the sinners who get in. It's the bad people who get in. And it's all because of innocent suffering that this is made possible. Those who resist that thread or that construct of mercy, those people end up becoming the enemies of God and don't understand anything about who he is. They reject him and only judgment is in store. We have talked over and over again that the only way you can make sense of your suffering is to see it in light of the cross. And this is exactly what Job tries to talk about and say, Listen, if you try to go uh, any other way, if you try to think about God in any other way, not only do you miss him, but you reject him. Because God's primary means of communicating to you how God wants to be seen, the heart of God that wants to uh, pump and allow you to hear his heartbeat, is one of mercy. 
the biggest aspect, and John helps us understand this, the biggest thing that God would want to be known as is love itself, love personified, mercy freely given. Job helps us to see what life without God would actually look like. And again, go back to the would you rather. Would you rather have a perfect life without having a glimpse or an understanding of divine mercy? Or would you have rather have life as you know it now, but with an unconditional supply of love, forgiveness, acceptance, hope, future, destiny? In other words, what, I think what Job is trying to ask you, sure, your life is great, but is it well with your soul? In the space of your heart and your soul that really matters, you can have your life figured out, but what about your soul? Is it right before God? Is there peace in the inner man? Is there a walk with God? Is there a kind of father and son dynamic that allows you to breathe at home? And I think this is ultimately Job's prayer. Help me understand how much I have by your mercy. And then he offers a warning to his friends. And he does make it very clear the wicked will be punished. It's a little ironic, but he makes it very plain. This is verse 11 through 23. I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword and his ascendants have not have not had, uh, excuse me, and his descendants have not enough bread. Those who survive him in the pest, uh, excuse me, those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteousness, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like food. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. I mentioned that Job will get a little bit more free with his speech regarding his understanding of God. It can tend to get him into a little bit of trouble. He does tend to get a little bit out over his skis. God will have an answer for him in, uh, in a little bit. But he does say, and I think it's worth bending into a little bit, we do have something to learn from the sufferer, and certainly Job's friends would. But I will teach you concerning the hand of God. I do find it a little bit ironic that he had just already said that he... Uh, had come to, to God and understood God and then said, ah, these are just the outskirts of his ways. Then he turns to his friends and is like, but let me teach you how God works. I do find that a little bit ironic, maybe a little bold. I don't know. It's hard to tell. 
But he does say in verse 12, behold, you have seen how God works yourselves. And you can almost imagine as he's talking to his friends, he's pointing to himself, saying, look how God works. I've been trying to show you all along how God works. It's not like you think. It's not like you've said. I've done all this stuff. I am innocent. I am righteous. And now look at me. Yes, Job is righteous. God will vindicate the righteous. We know that. God will vindicate Job. But also because of that, God will oppose anybody who oppresses the righteous. And this is really where Job starts to argue towards his friends. You have seen it yourself. Why then have you become altogether vain? Why have you taken up an empty logic amongst yourselves? He's going to lay out in kind of groups of two verses, as it's laid out in our Bibles, in groupings of two, uh, four different kind of uh, curses, if you will, or things that will happen to the wicked or what God will do to the wicked. Uh, And again, in in groups of two up until verse about 20, uh, and then he kind of goes on a little bit of a uh, description of the final thing. But the first thing that God will do to the wicked will uh, he'll go after his children. This is verse 14. This is scary stuff. If his children are multiplied, well, it's only for the sword's sake. Even those who survive him, the pestilence buries and his widows do not weep. Have no lasting heritage. There is no foreverness to the line of the wicked. He also talks about his money or his wealth in verse 16 and 17. He can heap up all the silver and he wants. He can pile up all the good stuff that he wants to and put it in his house. But at the end of the day, the righteous will wear it. It's only those who have, by God's mercy, gained righteousness before God, been given righteousness before God. They're going to bear all the good fruits of the labor of the wicked. Verse 18, he talks about his house. He builds his house like a moth. Like he, uh, Job kind of uses the illustration of like a moth's cocoon. Try to like protect yourself. You try to gain yourself some sort of security. Or like a booth that a watchman makes to allow him some sort of a, uh, I can watch over all my stuff. I can make sure I can hoard in all my stuff. But he goes to bed rich and will do so no more. His eyes open and his wealth is gone. And like a thief in the night, God's punishment will come for the wicked and they'll have no more left. And finally, this idea of like spiritual darkness or even the judgment of God itself. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night, a whirlwind carries him off. This is a little picturesque, but in verse 21, uh, Job uh, invokes this imagery of the east wind. Uh, this is also in Hosea 13:15 as the wind of the Lord. It's the sovereign wind that God uses to bring about judgment for his enemies. Same picture in Jeremiah 18. That it's a God-given wind meant for the decimation of his enemies. He comes after him and terrorizes. God himself comes after the wicked. He even gets a little bit personified in verse 22. It hurls, or maybe even better translated, he hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight, but he claps his hands at him and hisses at him from its place. This is the one thing that Job never had. Job never feared the terrors of God. He never feared judgment from God. 
He was always dependent upon his mercy. And this is the one thing he finally capstones uh, God's punishment for the wicked. He says, you will have the judgment of God. Not just your stuff taken away, because Job could have pointed from verses 14 through 19 and said, that's stuff that happened to me. But he says, but the final thing here, the thing that I never experienced is the terror of God itself. I somehow receive his mercy. Can't understand it. Don't know why. But I'm holding on to his mercy. But the wicked, if you reject it, my friend, oh, oh, what else is there but the terror of God? As hard as this is to process, for the believer, of course, this is our hope, isn't it? This is our hope that one day vindication will come. One day all the forces of evil and darkness will be put away, will be put in its place, will be finally lodged in its cubbyhole. No more to come out again. No more to bother us. No more to come after us, to haunt us, to destroy us, to take up place in our lives, to give us this fear and anxiety that feels like, again, almost like my own cynicism. They come in threes. That thought will never come again. One day vindication will happen. Job banks on that. But for all of this, we have to wait. For this entire Christian experience, in this entire Christian life, there is suffering and there is waiting. Vindication will come, but we must wait. As we said last week, And the week before, continue to say it again, the only way to make sense of all of this, even the waiting and the suffering, is not to look towards yours, but to look towards Christ's. And my friends, that is the finished reality that we have on this side of the cross and resurrection. There is a finality. There has been a death blow. There has already been a sentence said. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, when he arose from the dead, Satan was defeated at that moment. Darkness defeated at that moment. Or as we read in our prayer sheet, death, where is your victory? It's no longer. Our victory is given to us in Christ. It's finished. It's worked out. It's already signed, sealed, and delivered. We're just waiting. The reality is Job's suffering foreshadowed Christ's, but the cross gives us the full clarity. It's already done. The judgment has passed. God's mercy reigns. His favor for you abounds. This is not judgment. This is God with us in the suffering and in the waiting. You can be sure that because of Christ's innocent suffering for you, you are forever and will be forever fully vindicated by God. He was forsaken so that you will have all of God right now. And this is Job's hope. Again, I want to point you back to verses uh, 9 through 10, or verse 8 through 10, where he very clearly says, for the wicked, God will cut him off. My friends, this is not our reality. Why? Because Christ has already been cut off so that you might be accepted. See, God will take away the wicked's life. My friend, Jesus was already treated as wicked and his life was taken away so that you might have his life forever. Because 
Jesus was never heard on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your voice has been heard. Verse 10, will he delight in the Almighty? My friend, because of what Jesus has suffered for you, you have the full attention of the Father. You have him. And yes, this question still stands, is there anything that can fill the void as we wait and suffer? And this is something Job was leaning on. Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and more. Suffering is the thing that gives us that gift, that gives us clarity on the Jesus, only Jesus. If we're not through the throes of suffering, then it's Jesus plus my idol of comfort, Jesus plus my religiosity, Jesus plus my political views and values, Jesus plus the world as I knew it, Jesus plus life as I want it, Jesus plus fill in the blank my financial security. And suffering helps us to realize that it is truly Jesus, only Jesus, that gives us what our hearts truly need through the waiting and the suffering and into all of eternity. And the good news is through Christ you have him. Let's pray. Redeem this once for all